Hello there, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. I just briefly want to mention before I begin this message to those that may have never heard any of the messages that I speak, that I will seek to speak this word so that it isn't just merely me speaking, but it is indeed the Spirit of God that is coming forth and speaking to you as an individual and to the body of Christ for this particular time. It says in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to allow God to speak through us to one another. So it's not our words that are coming up, but indeed the very words that are from the Holy Spirit of God. That is what I will seek to do in this message. Now, for the most part, I do cast lots where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. And then I share on that particular chapter, sometimes the same day, or immediately after I've made brief notes from a half an hour of meditation on that chapter. And... This is also to facilitate seeking to hear what God would be saying and bringing it forth to you. Because God is sovereign. His presence is attached to every particle of existence. And it does say in the word of God that the casting of the lot and the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. If it's not done out of a wrong curiosity, or out of a life that is not clean before God. God does use the casting of lots, and it was practiced by the nation of Israel, by the early church, and throughout church history. But I'm not getting into that right now. I want to begin to get into the message that God would be saying to the body of Christ. Now, today is October the 12th of 2016. This is Yom Kippur, that the nation of Israel, those that are committed Jews, that are Orthodox and conservative Jews that believe in God and that fear God, many of them, are going to be observing today as God has commanded. Now, Yom Kippur means the Day of Atonement. And so I believe that because it is this special day, that it is particularly significant that I share what God would be saying to me, to you, and to the body of Christ. I therefore am going to turn to two passages that mention the Day of Atonement. The first passage is in Leviticus 23, 26 to 31. And the other passages, passage, pardon me, is in Leviticus 25, 8 to 11. <clears throat> so I will begin reading this passage first in Leviticus 23, 26 to 31. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, excuse me, I just need to turn something open here so I can read the whole thing. There shall be a day of atonement. Let me repeat that. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And ye shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. Ye shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statue forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. The other passage in regards to this day, Leviticus 25, 8 to 11. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years, and the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto you, unto thee, forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. That's the day of atonement. The trumpet of Jubilee is on the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall howl the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a Jubilee unto you. And ye shall return every man unto his possession and ye shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. And actually I could go on and continue to read more on this 25th chapter. As this, I've only read up to verse 11, and there's a lot more that explains this year of Jubilee. So I think I'll just read a bit further, beginning in verse 12. For it is the Jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of this Jubilee, ye shall return every man unto his possession. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buyest aught of thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not oppress one another according to the number of the years after the jubilee thou shalt buy of thy neighbor. And according to the number of years of the fruits he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of years thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of years thou shalt diminish the price of it. For according to the number of the years of the fruits doth he sell unto thee. Ye shall not therefore oppress one another, but thou shalt fear God, for I am the Lord your God. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land safely. And the land shall yield her fruit, and ye shall eat your fill, and dwell therein safely. 
And ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year and eat yet of the old fruit until the ninth. Until the fruits come in, ye shall eat of the old store. And I'll just leave it at that. First, I want to give you a real clear definition of the word atonement. In order to bring forth what God would be saying to the body of Christ in this particular passage. Now, this word is the word kippur, kippur. And of course, I've been learning Hebrew, and I particularly have focused on the Hebrew letters. And for those of you that aren't aware of it, the Hebrew letters as they are today come from older, different letters. And these letters you can see in certain sites on the internet, and one is my site at loverealize.com. I have a section across the top menu there where you can learn the Hebrew alphabet, but there's a lot more there. It also has a chart showing the letters of the Hebrew from way back, from the time of Abraham and earlier, you know, going back from approximately 1200 BC and earlier, all the way back. At that time, the letters were all symbol pictures. And all the surrounding nations basically spoke the same language and had the same letters. Uh, and so I just want to share that these letters over time changed, evolved as people wanted to write them maybe in a faster way or whatever. And so then you have the Greek letters, which come out of the Hebrew letters. Now, all the Greek letters are letters that have been flipped over and where the writing is in the opposite direction. Otherwise, they're basically the same symbols as the Hebrew were back then. And then from the Hebrew, we go to the uh, Latin, which has the, basically almost all the same letters as the English. And then we can go from the Latin to the English letters. So all of our English letters come from particular symbol letters that were in the Hebrew language back in 1200 BC, 1500 BC and earlier. And I could have you tell me your name and if my memory's up to par on this, although I haven't done it for a while, I could give you a deep meaning of what your name means from those symbol letters. And so what I want to do here before I get into speaking, and I have to trust God because I don't have any notes. I don't, I trust for the Spirit of God to speak through me. And what I do, therefore, is I rely on nothing much more than just basic definitions and sometimes a brief um, obviously commentaries from the notes of meditation. But here today I just have the scripture and nothing else. But I want to share with you the meaning of the word atonement. Kippur. 
in the first letter is a hand, an open hand. Okay. It's an open hand. And this word basically means to be fully submitted, to be receptive, to be yielded. So, the next symbol in this word is an elbow and a hand, and what we and they know what these words mean. And this letter symbol of a elbow all the way to the hand in a horizontal position means worship that is active. It means to be. It means activity, but it also means worship. So, and it means therefore. Basically, it means worship that is actively engaged. So, that's the second meaning of the second letter. And then the third one is the symbol of a mouth. And that word means to blow, to scatter, and it also means edge. And then the next letter is a tent peg, which means fully secured and attached, basically. And the next letter is the picture of a head, and it means first, priority, and chief. So what is this word? When you put all of these words together, you get a far richer and more genuine root meaning of this word. What does it mean? When you put all those words together, this is what it means. Fully submitting and receiving in active engaged worship, the scattering and blowing away or the covering to the very edge, like a cover going onto a lid. There's nothing that is seen because that cover is totally covering it so that nothing gets spill out. And so I'll repeat that again. Fully submitting and receiving active engaged worship in the scattering and blowing away or the covering to the very edge so that there is nothing and making that fully secured and attached as the chief significance of one's life. In other words, this word atonement in its full meaning means that we have come to a place where we fully submitted our very heart, our very soul, and yielded our very soul in engaged act of worship to the total scattering and blowing away of our sin. And we've made it fully secured and attached and a priority in our lives. Is it any wonder that the descriptions of worship in heaven are all around the lamb that was slain? What are we worshiping in heaven when we're saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain, who has redeemed us, from every tribe and nation and kindred and tongue. There's one thing about worship, that when the heart is fully engaged and the soul is fully engaged, it's never boring, even if you're repeating the same words over and over. Is it any wonder that the beasts in heaven that are the closest to the throne of God, that are full of eyes, and that go at instant speed to any part of the universe in observation and so on on behalf of God. 
to execute his purposes and his will, that those beasts can say before the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And repeat it over and over. And it's never boring because they're at the very presence of God, the very source of all the universe, of all existence, of all creation, is emanating forth in waves and streams of life that are coming out of a love that is beyond comprehension and also beyond comprehension in the pleasure of fellowship in that love that is a reciprocation back and forth. And what I want to share here today is how we as individuals need to come into an intimacy with God through a deep reciprocation of the very being of God, which is that ultimate perfection of love that cannot be greater because it is ultimate. It is the ultimate source that can be trusted because there is no corruption in it. It is a love that has such integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to love, which thereby holds corruption. For love is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate fulfillment or gratification, and thereby it has no corruption in it. And it has such integrity that it judges all that is contrary to corruption. This is the love of God in his integrity. And out of that foundation that has no corruption, because that love is so pure, it is a blazing fire of love, springs forth creativity that has no corruption and therefore can enlarge forever in greater realms of creativity and fulfillment and never end. And it is ultimately manifested and crystallized in this time and space realm in that God, in the full expression of himself into this time and space realm, in Jesus Christ, because the word son means expression, and Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father, as mentioned in Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, that he is the full expression of the Father. Now, I'm not here to get sidetracked and talking on the Trinity and all that right now, except to say that basically God is three persons, and if he wasn't, he wouldn't be almighty, because it's only if he can be a person beyond time and space as the Father and be the originator as the Father, Father meaning originator, that he could truly rule as God. If he can't be in conscious intelligence beyond the time and space realm, he would not be ultimately God. And he can only be God if he can be fully expressed into the time and space realm and rule in conscious intelligence and personality in the time and space realm. And if he couldn't do that, he would be less than God. And if he could not be God as the person of the Holy Spirit filling all space, he also would be less than God. But he can be totally 
in omnipresence, in total intelligence, in consciousness everywhere at the same time, and appear in personage in multitudes in no end of number of places at the same time, and in active engagement and fellowship with people. And so God is the Almighty's one, which means Elohim. That's one of the names of God, and it basically means the Almighty's one. And so God in the Son, which is the government of God in the time and space realm, God governs through the Son in this world, in personage and in that realm. God suffered more than you, a mere creature. He humbled, think of this, here you are, a mere creature. And God, the creator of the universe that is so great they can't see the end of it, there, that if I tr described it to some of you, you would be, if you don't know what you should in this day and age. Can you imagine our sun is not a large sun? There are suns that are a thousand times greater than our sun. And yet our th sun is a thousand times greater than the earth. Do you realize that light travels around the world. The speed of light is seven times around the world in one second. And so we have our sun. And yet you look at all those stars and the closest star would take five years of light traveling at that speed to get to the closest star. And yet you look at all the stars that are just in our one galaxy, millions upon millions. And it would take millions of light years to travel to just stars in our own galaxy, depending on where they are. And yet they, are now, they now believe that there are billions of galaxies all having billions of stars. It is beyond our comprehension that God would humble himself more than you, a mere creature, and suffer more than you, a mere creature by taking the judgment of the sin that you've committed against God upon himself so that you could be reconciled to God and receive eternal life. This is love beyond human comprehending. This is humility beyond human comprehending. And it is the very being of God because of that, oh, because his being is so ultimate in love, in the perfection of love, that it is the very reason for which we are created. We were created to worship God and it is only in the reciprocation of the being of God's love, which is crystallized and manifested so clearly in the atoning work of Christ. That we find our meaning, our full meaning, our full destiny, our full fulfillment and significance. Nothing can satisfy the inner void of your being because you have a God-shaped vacuum. You were created by God for his pleasure, as it says in Revelations 4. Verse 11, 
that he created all things, and for his pleasure they are and were created. And it is of him and through him and to him that all things are. I don't want to get distracted in the deep and wondrous thoughts of all of this. Just to briefly say that God has given you a free will and each of us a free will. And if we didn't have free will, if we weren't the source of our own action, we would be machines. We wouldn't have the capacity to love. And there would be no heaven. And there would be no hell. In fact, there would be nothing. Because life itself finds its source in love. And I've described love, and maybe I'll just mention this about love, because this is on the atonement, which is focused on what happened on the cross. When God and his son, Jesus Christ, humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and in his love poured out his blood and had his body broken unto death, he poured out his love in the breaking of his body and the outpouring of the life blood that came from the Father, for he did not have a woman that gave him that. He did not have a natural father that gave him that blood. It was the very blood of God that was poured out for you on the cross so that you could be cleansed and made white as snow in your very inner being, in your spirit, in your soul, and eventually be redeemed also in your body with a new resurrected body as well. That is the love of God. And this symbol of the cross has a great reflection in the creation itself. We have the negative and the positive symbol. in mathematics, in electronics, and it has great significance. Do you know also that the symbol of the cross is in the symbol letters of the Hebrew that I was telling you about that go right back to the beginning of writing? All of the symbols go way back to those symbol letters, and the la it's the last letter of the alphabet in the time when they had symbol letters. And the Hebrew is in symbol letters. And it's exactly the way the cross looks today. So those people that are saying, atheists and so on, that are saying, oh, you shouldn't have symbols of the cross, and they're trying to remove crosses because they're offended at the cross, they have no argument because the symbol of the cross goes right back to the beginning of time before Christ ever died on the cross and was the very last symbol of the alphabet then, and it means symbol, sign. Isn't that something? And it is to this day a symbol of, and sign of that ultimate positive of the universe and that ultimate source of the universe, which is the very being of God himself that is manifested in its ultimate love on the cross. 
And so the negative symbol is the symbol of the integrity of God's love that cuts off all corruption, all those that out of their own free will, and because they have free will, they're the source of their own action and self-responsible. Therefore, they can't blame God for their choices that have resulted in negative consequences, nor can they blame God for creating the devil, for he was the source of his own action and his own choices. Yes, we can become bitter because of all the tragedy and the suffering that we see around us in this world. And we can shake our fist at the one that created us. But that's because we've lost the fear of God and we've lost the right perception of God in our heart. We've begun to view God as some bully dictator that is causing all this terrible suffering and consequences around us in our own life and in the world. And we've lost sight of the fact that God is love, and because he is love, he's not going to create robots. He's going to create beings that have the capacity to love, which means they must be the source of their own action. They must be able to have their choice, which means there's the potential of hell and heaven in our choices. But God's purpose, his ultimate purpose, is that us, which have intelligence and free will, are brought through his plan and his workings into being his corporate bride, into total harmony and oneness with his will in a love relationship that ever expands in creative realms of fulfillment and fellowship that never end throughout eternity as we are married as the corporate bride to God to rule in the universe against all tendencies of corruption so that the universe continues to expand in goodness from God, who is the very source of love and of all goodness. I am sharing with you here about the negative symbol which is the integrity of his God's love that requires judgment against all that is contrary to his love. And that negative symbol is a horizontal line that represents cutting off and also represents foundation without corruption. And it is from that that came forth a love that was expressed in what is ultimate, which is the love that was revealed of God on the cross that suffered more than you a mere creature and humbled himself more than you a mere creature and absorbed the consequences of your rebellion against God upon himself so that you could genuinely repent and receive his atoning work on the cross. This is not some mere mental ascents. You know, I've heard people say, just say the sinner's prayer. Well, if you say it and you really mean it, yes. And it doesn't have to be in a loud voice. But let us remember that when it says in Romans chapter 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That in the next few verses it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
In other words, this is a cry of help from the very depths of her being. Christ made it very clear when he talked about the Pharisees and he said of the Pharisees, the Pharisee said thus with himself, well, I thank God that I tithe, that I fast three times a week and so on, and I'm not like these sinners. And then he said, but look at this publican over here. He's beating his breast and he won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he's crying out from the depths of his heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he says, that one went justified before God, the publican that beat his breast. And when we have had a true perception in our heart and a reception in our heart, of the holiness of God, we recognize that behind the holiness of God, there must be the requirement of judgment. If there wasn't, there would be corruption. And without, and when there's corruption, there cannot be wholeness. There cannot be beauty. There cannot be that which is eternal and goes on in goodness and ever expands in goodness. Corruption is a principle that goes in the opposite direction. The being of God is the very opposite of corruption. It is an act anti-corrupt state of being, which is this ultimate love that is represented in the negative symbol in the holiness of God, which is the integrity of God's love, and is represented in the positive symbol, which is the symbol of the cross, in the creativity of that love ultimately manifest, which springs from the foundation of that negative symbol and forms the symbol of the cross. representing an ultimate positive, the ultimate source of life. And it is when we have that perception from our heart and there's that deep turning that the shell of hardness that is held us in a state of rebellion like a clenched fist against God is broken. It takes the perception of the negative so to speak, of the integrity of God's love that requires judgment, that causes us to recognize our unworthiness and our undoneness in the light of his holiness. And it takes, and but you know when we see that aright, when we see that God is holy and that out of holiness comes wholeness, it comes beauty, comes creativity that can ever expand. When we see that God requires judgment because that is the requirement for there to be goodness, for there to be life, for there to be love, then we realize God is good. And when we realize God is good, we are, can only be driven to one conclusion. He therefore must be good enough to provide destiny for what he has created. For if he could not provide destiny for what he has created, he has not provided purpose in his creation. And that implies him to be less than perfect. And we know that he isn't. We know that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In fact, the word of God says his goodness is unsearchable. And so, here we see our need and conclude that God must be good and therefore he must have within his very being the capacity, not only the capacity, the actual reality 
to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and to suffer more than us a mere creature by living a perfect life in a perfect human body. Even though being tempted like us and not sin, only that could possibly be a substitute for man. An animal cannot represent man's soul, nor his heart, nor his body. Nor can a human being that has succumbed to temptation. It must be a human being that is perfect. And therefore, it can only be perfect and verified as perfect in one that lives a perfect life without sin. And it says of Christ that he was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. And so Jesus Christ, as it were, took the first man, Adam, in which the whole human race existed, and in which we received the reverberations of the consequences of that fall from God. In suffering and in death and in dispositions that are destructive in human nature and in the psyche, all of those things that exist in the human race come from the consequences of our first parents. But Jesus Christ, as it were, through his obedience against all temptation, as it were, took that first man, Adam, and in his obedience, nailed him to the cross so that we could now be transplanted into Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Jesus Christ is called the Son of Man. Often he dresses himself as the Son of Man. Do you realize what that means? The word son means expression. What he is saying is that man cannot be expressed unless he is sinless. If there is distortion and sin in man, he is not being fully expressed, and therefore it is not the expression of man that is full and complete. When Christ says he's the son of man, he's saying he is in human body, and yet he is perfect in human body, and therefore God, because only God can be perfect in human body. And so when he says he's the son of man, he's saying he's the one that was tempted in all points as we are and yet did not sin and therefore fully expresses what God intended man to be, which is the full representation of God without corruption because any iota of sin or corruption distorts the expression of God through man and therefore is not the full expression of man and therefore is not the expression of man. And what I want to share here today is that Jesus Christ, who is called the Son of God and the Son of Man, wants you to look upon him. Even as the children looked upon the serpent in the wilderness, remember the serpents that bit them in the wilderness. And what did God command Moses to do? To make a pole and put a serpent on the pole. And as many as looked to that pole were healed. Now in our heart and in our soul, there must be a look to who God is in his holiness and how beautiful it is and how we deserve judgment. And a look to the goodness of God that comes out of that, that points towards his power to be ultimate in love to the point that he died on the cross. Do you realize 
The, it says in the word of God that Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, this was in the being of God even before the world created. It was always that God's being was in this perfection of love that had not only the capacity but the reality to become a perfect atoning sacrifice as he did on the cross. In fact, because the Father is beyond the time and space realm, it was there as a reality in the Father and fully expressed in the Son even before the world was created. Because Jesus Christ was a reality slain before the world was created. But in the time and space realm, it happened. In our time and space realm here, and it wasn't until after Christ died on the cross that our soul could be fully cleansed and our spirits so that there could not only be God dwelling with our soul and spirit, but in dwelling our soul and spirit because we could be imbued now with his presence because of being cleansed in his spirit and in his presence. Or in, in his, being cleansed in our spirit and in our soul so that his presence could imbue us. And the word imbued basically is what the word baptism means. And there's one baptism. And when and the word the understanding of baptism is the garment being saturated with a dye, so its identity is changed. And when our heart becomes soft, when it becomes broken in the light of seeing our need for God's mercy and as for his forgiveness, and we cry out and say, like the publican, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We will be saturated with the indwelling of his presence because our heart is opened up from that hardness of a clenched fist to surrender like an open hand, just as the word atonement has the first symbol being an open hand. It's become soft and open to who God is in his holiness and in his great mercy that he would love you so much. Your heart breaks and you cry out and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And his presence now saturates your being. And he, as a hand, comes to that open hand and rests his hand against your hand, forming two hands of prayer. Now you have a hand that can't close back into an open fist, and you have the seed of the new divine nature planted in you that is described in 1 John, where it says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And this is the victory that overcomes. It says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And it is only when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in your soul that has been broken open like that hand that you have the new nature formed in you. Now you are a new creation in God and you're in the new Adam. And now the meaning of that word atonement is being fulfilled in your life, which means fully submitting and receiving an active, engaged worship, the scattering and blowing away of all your sin and your uncleanness, and making that fully secured and attached as the chief significance of your life. And that is what happens when you really see who God is. He becomes your focus of worship. He becomes the one that you're always rejoicing over. And the secret is, it says in the word of God, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And it also says that if we fall short in, 
I believe it is First Peter 1. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and has forgotten that he has been purged of his old sins. But when we spend quality time waiting on God, curbing back our own self-initiations in utter awe of who God is, being still in his presence, humbling ourselves before him, learning to wait on him, we begin to experience that saturation of his love and that reciprocation. Christ said, even as I abide in the Father, so as you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you shall likewise abide in me. The secret to abiding in God is in the focus of the being of who God is in his love, which is crystallized in the atonement on the cross. And so I've shared a lot, but I want to share more on this. Because in the passages we read, we found out also that this day is significant because it is the day when one blows for the 50th year the trumpet of Jubilee, which represents coming out of bondage into liberty. In this case, it was significant in the regards to the fact that the value of everything increased every year until the 50th year. So it came up to its highest value on the 49th year. And then in the 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, when the trumpet was blown, people were released from their debts. And if they owed a bunch of money to their landlord, it was zero. And this is significant because this is probably the 70th jubilee since the time that Israel crossed Jordan. That would be 70 times 50 years. This is a very significant time. And we know that the Jewish people in Israel are celebrating the jubilee. They know this is the jubilee year. How do we know it's the 70th? Well, there is calculation that seem to strongly indicate that. We can't be fully dogmatic on it. But even the way the moons have aligned and everything all the blood moons and everything, it seems that this, there's good reason to believe this is the 70th Jubilee. From the time that Israel crossed the Jordan River and entered into the Promised Land. Brothers and sisters in your lives, I believe there are many of you that, are, that have been barren for years and you've wondered why God's allowed so much barrenness and, and maybe you're in debt. I'm in a lot of debt right now and I'm repentant over my lack of wisdom in investing things I thought my domain names would sell and I invested in things to make more money in order to be free to serve God with a totally pure motive. I'm believing God's going to set me free too. I don't care how he does it. I'm working hard on the internet and it'll probably happen soon just because of my efforts there. But what I want to share here is that this is a significant time to the body of Christ. And he's calling his people to really learn what it is to mourn over their sin and over the sin of God's people. Look at what's happening in the States in the election. We have two leaders who have been exposed with a lot of corruption. Well, one way more than the other. It's obvious that Hillary Clinton is, Hillary Clinton is very, very corrupt and has done very evil things. 
Trump has at least humbled himself and acknowledged that he has done these things and that he's ashamed of it and he's apologized. And we know that he recently received Christ in his life according to focus on the family and other things that I saw. I don't know how deep his conversion is, but I do know this, that what's happened to them and how they have been exposed is also a picture of how God is beginning to expose the body of Christ for all the stains and the filth and the corruption that are on our garments. And God is saying, okay, I'm exposing all of these things. Are you going to mourn? Are you going to weep over all the things and the wrinkles and the crinkles that are in your garment body of Christ? And are you going to come out of all of the things of control that are limiting the fullness of my headship over my body? I don't care if you're a denomination. God, you can, as a denomination, start repenting and allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to come into your body so that you're no, no, no longer denominating and dividing because denominate means basically this is who we are. Therefore, we don't receive you the same way even though you're a brother and sister in Christ and yet Christ commands us to receive one another as he received us as sinners. If we saw the greatness of God's mercy to us as an individual and if we see it corporately, how can we not repent of not receiving one another? and loving one another unconditionally. Just because I attend a church and I'm not involved in a church doesn't mean that I'm not obeying God because he has a place for me in the body of Christ and a season for me not to be involved. And yet people will judge me because of that and they will put conditional love on me. Well, I'm not going to fully receive you, brother. Oh, I'm going to have mistrust in you because you're coming and you're not involved with anything. And yet I'm praying and I'm seeking God and I'm involved elsewhere. Do we have any right to assume that we are the ones that own the sheep? Or that we're upset because the sheep are going to another church that may be more in fire than us? All of these things God wants us to repent of, control, where we refuse to allow the members of the body to function in the gifts of the Spirit as they did in the Azusa Street Revival, as they did in the Welsh Revival. Except now, God wants his government to come in alignment and under his headship so that revival doesn't come and go like it did in those revivals, but is fully contained to enlarge and conquer our nations, our communities, and our cities for God. I am telling you that if you as a local body of believers begin to humble yourselves and to mourn over those things that are sin in your lives as individuals and corporately, to mourn over the fact that the nation has fallen into such a state of apostasy that I can tell you and assure you that the glory of God will come into your midst and you will, because of his very presence of glory as it was in Azusa Street, as it was in the Welsh Revival, the glory of God will conquer your community. It will conquer your city. Is God going to give us time to conquer our nations for him before he returns? I am pleading that he will. And I'm pleading that in the election in the States that Trump will get in so that God gives us more time before his judgment falls. But if his judgment is deemed to fall sooner, even in the midst of great tribulation, may we come forth to be his bride. But it is a greater glory if we conquer in the midst of prosperity and need not the tribulation to corner us into that place.
God is calling us to blow the trumpet of alarm that will liberate his people from the bondage and the oppression that we have been putting one another in. Yes, the government in the United States has been very oppressive against believers and it has been taking away their liberty. And if there's an election and Clinton gets in, it will be way worse. It will be probably too far gone to ever be returned to a place where there's liberty and religious freedom. Because there's too many people that are globalists that want one world government and they want to control everything thinking they are in the place of God because humanism is basically a religion that replaces God with man. God is calling us as his people to come to the place where we repent and turn to him with all our heart in our local assemblies and begin to make his house a house of prayer. That's the other thing God wants to restore. If he's going to restore the living stone so that they become a habitation of God through the Spirit. Those stones must come into unity first with God. And when they do and repent of all the loves of the world that have hardened their hearts, the gods of amusement and pleasure, where we idolize sports, where we spend a bunch of time on sports and amusements, and other things that desensitize us and drunkenness instead of praying and seeking his face. And then we wonder why our hearts are so hard that caused divorce and adultery in the church, that caused divisions in the church. Then we wonder why our nation isn't conquered for God if we repent of these things, of the gods of pleasure, of amusement, of materialism. We turn back to God. Remember that the sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread and idleness, there's no time to be idle. God commands us to redeem the time because the days are evil. And he's calling his people to come forth and be his bride. Where we don't want anything more than the glory of God. Where we want to be hidden like Robert Evans, like the leader of the, one of the main leaders of the Azusa Street Revival who hid his head in a box lots of the time because he just wanted people to see Jesus and his glory come down. And they became so hungry because their hunger wasn't quenched by the desensitizing loves of the world. Idleness, amusement, pleasure, pride. The word of God says if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not as the, of the Father, but is of the world. And we are living in the last times, and God is jealous for his bride. Will you be those that stand with the Lord on his side? Or will you stand in the way of what his zeal desires to do and be judged? Do and be judged because you stood against him in his desire to bring forth his bride. I pray that this message will impact your lives and result in the blowing of the trumpet to awaken God's people to pray and become his house of prayer. We should be starting our church services, learning to be in the fear of God, learning to wait on him and be in awe of him 
and out of that great humility to come forth into great joy and liberty and praise and be, as it were, washing one another's feet with the word of God and literally doing it too, to come into unity. That's what we need in this hour. And my earnest prayer is that I would and you would find the grace from God to let the zeal of his house consume us with his purposes instead of the things of this world. God bless you all. Thank you.